Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 21st, 2022. It is currently 7.56 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two floors above a street in Abilene, Texas. I'm coming to you two stories above a street in Abilene, Texas. I, I, again, we still haven't come to an agreement on, on how to say it. I know I know some of you are like, you've said it so many different ways now. I, I know I still haven't decided, but yes, I'm coming, I'm coming to you live from my second story bedroom here. I, and it's not even a bedroom. The second story room here in Abilene, Texas, that overlooks a street. And from this high and lofty position <laughs> to the second floor, is that really that high and lofty? But from this room, well, I'm here to, well, talk to you about important things going on in the world, going on within Christianity, hopefully giving you much to think about, to challenge you, to give you spiritual food, and hopefully something we do will benefit you. Uh, I try to do that in every broadcast. I try to accomplish something, and hopefully I can get something accomplished this evening. Probably what I need to do is just give up on the whole, two. because as soon as I say it, two stories above, two floors above, no matter how I say it, I immediately question it and then say it in a different way. I should probably just retire that and say, you know what, I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. There you go. Is that sufficient? It probably is, right? But we're not here to talk about that. Here to talk about a very, very, very important concept, and I hope I can have your full attention, all right? Your full attention. Having a little bit of fun there at the beginning, but now it's time to get very serious, okay? So I hope I will have your attention. I want to begin by giving you really two, I don't know if we're going to call these two concepts. I'm going to give you two things, all right? Two important things. First thing I'm going to give you, well, is some scripture. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Now, this is speaking of Jesus, all right? This is speaking of Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple from him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. That's Mark chapter 15, verse 20, speaking of Jesus Christ. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him. They put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. There in Mark 15, 20, we have the account of the historical reality of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, being crucified, being killed, right? And we believe that he was crucified and he was killed and he died for sinners as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Obviously, an absolutely essential part of Christianity, an essential part of the gospel is the death, burial, and then ultimate resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there speaks of his crucifixion, his death, his suffering. So I want you to just think about the crucifixion. I want you to think about the cross. Now, so... Let's call it the crucifixion, or you can call it the cross. I want you to think about that. The crucifixion, the cross. Next thing I want to give you, culture war. Culture war or culture wars. Now, a culture war is a conflict between groups with different ideas, beliefs, philosophies. Another definition, a culture war is a culture conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. It commonly refers to topics on which there is general societal disagreement and polarization and societal values. So, so we, 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 we have the concept, we have the idea, the, the truth, the reality of Jesus' crucifixion, of Jesus' death, of the cross. And then I want you to also put down this idea of a culture war. Again, let me define it. Culture war 
or a plural, culture wars. Culture war or culture wars is a conflict or conflicts between groups with different ideals, different ideas, beliefs, philosophies. A, a, a more detailed definition. A culture war is a culture conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. It commonly refers to topics on which there is general societal disagreement and polarization in societal values. Now, what does the cross of Jesus Christ, what does the crucifixion have to do with culture wars, and what should we learn from the cross about how to view culture wars? Now, many Christians, they find themselves fighting culture wars all the time. They fight those culture wars on social media. They find arguing with people at work, arguing with family members, arguing, 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 fighting, fighting, getting mad, getting upset, maybe trying to boycott a company, you know, writing letters, going up before the school board, whatever. Many Christians find themselves fighting the culture wars. And I, and I think we have to think about this. Is it possible that Christians' engagement in the culture war is actually, we're doing something that's contrary to maybe the lesson we should have learned from the cross of Jesus Christ and from the crucifixion? Is our engagement, think of it this way, is our engagement in culture wars, our, I'm going to go so far as to say, our distraction with culture wars, is it actually contrary to the gospel and to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do on one hand we say, I believe in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I believe in the cross of Christ. I believe in Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice. I believe in his death for sinners. On one hand, do we say that and then we almost forget that or ignore that reality and that truth when we're fighting and arguing over the next culture war and we're getting upset and we're getting mad? I think I would get lots of different opinions here. My own personal feelings, and I'll just get this right, I'll just say this from the start, is that I, I'm not so sure about Christians' involvement in culture wars. But, but Christians are constantly upset about something, right? They're constantly mad, and they want something to be done. We, again, I, we could go back. I can just go through my time as a Christian. I became a Christian in the, in the late 1980s as a teenager, and, and, and Christians were fighting the culture war. They were upset about MTV. They were upset about rock music. They were upset about Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne. We can go on and on and on. They wanted warning labels put on records. They wanted videos banned. They wanted MTV removed from their cable company. They were upset, fight, 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 because what did they want? They wanted their values. They wanted, I want you to hear this. Christians want, wanted their values, their beliefs, and their practices dominant in society. They wanted their views to be the dominant view in society, and they were going to fight to make it so. We, we could talk about the history of the moral majority within and, and, and turning to politics. We've got to make, we've got to stand for family values and we've got to make our values the dominant one in society. I remember Christians in the 90s upset, wanting, wanting, you know, going after Marilyn Manson or upset about this or upset about, I mean, just, it was always something mad, upset, fighting. We got to, we got to do this. We got to silence this. We got to cancel this. And, and it's just on and on and on. Recently, it's been Disney, Disney. We got to bring Disney down. And because uh, the, the governor of Florida... And the Florida uh, government has now removed some tax privileges and governing privileges from Disney. I've seen many Christians like, yes, finally, about time we can stop this woke, ungodly mentality and we can make our views dominant. How, and, and, and almost like they've just won some grand victory, right? And Christians upset over the movie Turning Red. It's just, just it's always another culture war, another fight. I, we went through that period of time where every year, you know, Fox News was telling us there was a war on Christmas and Christians were upset because people were calling them holiday trees and not Christmas trees. And they were mad that the, that the department store would not say Merry Christmas, but we say happy holidays. And Christians were upset and Christians were mad because we want our, our views to be the dominant ones within society. 
I remember when the movie The Last Temptation of Christ came out. Christians were standing in front of movie theaters with, you know, with, with signs, you know, boycott, don't go to this movie theater, and, and just, again, upset, upset. I mean, it, I've, I've watched it happen so many times. So have you. You've probably maybe even been involved in some of these culture wars. But I ask you again, are we almost doing that which is contrary to the lesson that we should have learned from the cross? Now, hopefully I've set that up. Hopefully I've got you thinking. Hopefully I've brought you the two concepts together. Now, the reason I'm asking this is because an article was written on April the 14th, 2022. The headline, The Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. The Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. Now, as soon as I saw that headline, I was like, okay, save this article, save this article. We need to talk about it. But every day I sit in front of this microphone, there's always so many things to talk about that sometimes I can't get to it. But I wanted to this evening just to, to kind of at least, I've been throwing out lots of in, in interesting concepts. I've been throwing out concepts, hopefully to spark conversations. We can go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I threw that out twice, trying to get, trying to get people thinking. Um, I threw out this concept about we have to teach uh, people what the Bible doesn't say. I threw that concept out. I've been throwing out some concepts because, and I think these concepts are extremely important, even if no one else does, and I may return to them at different time. This is another one I may return to, whether there is lots of discussion about this or whether it's ignored, because I think this is an important concept. Here's the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's the cross. And here's Christians fighting culture wars, and I think the cross contradicts those culture wars. Just the title itself, I, I can I, I I say amen to. I say amen completely to it. Because I think the cross teaches us something that we seem to ignore and we deny when we're fighting culture wars. Here we go. The cross contradicts our culture wars. That's the headline. Right underneath that headline is this. The victory of Christ was won by crucifixion, not societal conquest. Ooh. <laughs> the victory of Christ was won by crucifixion, not societal conquest. I may be sending that out on the Church One app over the next few days. I may send it out every day until everyone memorizes that. The victory of Christ was won by crucifixion, not societal conquest. And Christians want societal conquest. We want to recapture, you know, America for Jesus. We want America to understand that Jesus is Lord, and we want them to then follow the morality of Christianity. And we want this to happen by force. We want it, we want it to, to impose our morality upon the lost, upon the unregenerate. And we want to do so through political victories, through coercion. We want to do so by threat, boycott, censorship, however we can get it done. And the cross seems to have a completely different message, a completely different concept. Now, underneath, so the headline is the cross contradicts our culture wars. Then, then underneath that, the victory of Christ was won by crucifixion, not societal conquest. And then underneath that, there's, there's this, it seems like it would look like like kind of a famous drawing of Christ being crucified. One that you would see like in an older book. All right. So Christ is crucified. Underneath him, you see uh, soldiers and different people, and they're kind of looking up. Some are looking down, and they're looking at the, the Son of God who is crucified. But the, the, what is different about this picture, even though it looks like an older picture, an older drawing that you would see in a book, well, you see these, and it's black and white. The drawing is in black and white. Um, you'll see that there are these... Uh, so, I guess we'll call them like these wooden stakes being held up that are in color, right? So it's stark contrast. Some are red, some are blue. Some are red, some are blue. With And on these are these little wooden stakes that are being held up are these 
our, our hands, right? And one's pointing to the right, one's pointing to the left. So it's this idea that here's Jesus on the cross and then below him, well, there are people fighting their culture wars. Like Jesus is being crucified while the rest of the people are like, no, the right, no, the left, right, left, right, left, blue, red, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, progressive, all fighting. So it's a very dramatic, symbolic picture that I looked at over and over and over. There's Jesus being crucified, and it's almost like everyone ignores the crucifixion of Jesus. Everyone forgets about what Jesus did on the cross while we're fighting our culture wars. Or, in many cases, we're contradicting what Jesus did on the cross by all of our yelling and screaming and fighting and bickering and, and, and running around trying to make our, 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 our values the dominant values within society. By force. Here's some things from the article. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt, uh, Haidt, I guess, H-A-I-D-T, don't know exactly how you would say his last name, Haidt, I, I, I think maybe how you would say it, uh, we'll call it moral psychologist Jonathan wrote this week in The Atlantic that we are all now living on the other side of the Tower of Babel. That's interesting. Now, why would a moral psychologist writing this week, and when, this week, this was published on April the 14th, so the week of April the 14th, 2022, he wrote in The Atlantic that we're now living on the other side of the Tower of Babel. What, 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 what was this moral psychologist trying to say? Well, the first thing we need to know, this moral psychologist who wrote this, or who, who said that, Jonathan, again, H-A-I-D-T, is an atheist. And he doesn't mean that literally, of course. The metaphor points to America's fracturing into culturally tribal factions, which this moral psychologist argues reached its tipping point in 2009 when Facebook pioneered the like button and Twitter added a retweet function. Now, so he says we're living on the other side of the Tower of Babel. He's using it as a metaphor. And what he means by that is now culturally, everyone is fractured into factions and that this all reached a tipping point back in 2009. That in 2009, this was a tipping point and everyone broke broke. Uh, broke off into culturally tribal factions, cultural tribal factions. Now, let's just stop right here. Very important. No matter what you think, what I'm about to say is a fact, and I think church history proves it. The church is always following culture just doing so from a distance. What do I mean that? Whatever culture is doing in 2009, you get to, you know, you move up, you know, five, 10 years, the church will start following the same cultural trend. The church is always behind the cultural cultural trend, but it's always following the cultural cultural trend. So if the culture is breaking down into cultural, as they say, tribal factions, if the, if the culture is breaking down into tribal factions, sooner or later, that tribal faction mentality will creep into the church and the church will start following it. So if that was going on in 2009, Lo and behold, I think the church started going in that same kind of culturally, that cultural tribal factions started showing up more and more in the church. And I will say really becomes, I think, majorly evident 2012, 2013, really as you're getting close to 2015. I think 2015 becomes a turning point for the church. You can say whether you agree or disagree, but I think there's a lot to that right there. Although culture wars have always existed, these technological developments encourage trivality, mob mentalities, and the potential for everyday outrage like never before. 
So with so this was happening within in 2009. This was going on within the culture. The te- the te- technological developments encouraged trivality. In other words, just over trivial things, people were getting upset about over trivial things. People were arguing about over trivial things. People were were dedicating their time to right. So trivality. Uh, what else is they have here? Um, mob mentality and the potential for everyday outrage. Trivial things, mob mentalities, and then arguing and 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 arguing. Now, way back, way back, maybe 2010, maybe 2011, I don't even remember what year, maybe 2012, I'd have to go back and see, but it was a very, very long, around that time when I was introduced to the world of Facebook way back then, I was kind of slow getting on to the platform. But I remember there was a person who was a pastor and on his, whatever you call it, Facebook feed, Facebook, whatever it was called back then, I don't even remember, his his Facebook wall, whatever the case it was. Again, I don't remember the terminology. It's been a long time. It's 2022. That's a long time ago. Um, but I remember getting caught up in it. And it's like every day. There was a new outrage. Every day there was a new debate. Every day there was a new fight. And in some ways, this pastor almost, he almost sparked it. He would throw something out there and it would just turn into utter chaos and fighting and arguing and condemning and judging. In many cases, it was over trivial things. There's the triviality. There's there's this just trivial. It became a mob mentality, everyone taking sides and everyone was outraged. And I remember just getting so caught up into it, caught up into it. And I remember that, like, what in the world is going on? And then next thing you know, you're fighting about this and you're fighting about this and you're arguing about this and condemn, judge, condemn, judge, condemn, fight, 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 fight. Like, I'm going to make sure everyone agrees with me. And I remember finally going, you know what, enough of this. So I just started, you know, not following this person, not following this person, blocking this person, blocking this person, and basically said, I'm not going to do anything. On, on Facebook having anything to do with God, anything to do with Christianity. I'm just going to be done with it. I'm just going to talk about, I don't know, music, whatever, just just nonsense. And it, and now basically it became a source of trivality. It became a source of, of not actually any spiritual good. And it was just, just everything spun out of control and everything was bad. I learned a lot of bad lessons. I learned a lot of lessons because of stupidity on my part on Facebook. That's why I'm not on it and stay away from social media because it's just, it's a train wreck. But, but we didn't realize what was happening. Like there was a change going on within the culture and that cultural change was, was now impacting Christians and the church. What was something that could have been used for good, it started breaking into basically like the Tower of Babel. And, and again, as he said, it, it became a tipping point and then it, it broke in because of these technological developments. It encouraged trivality, mob mentalities and the potential for everyday outrage like never before. For the moral psychologist, this descent into Babel means not a new cultural war, but a different kind of culture war. So he says, like, there's always been culture wars to some level. There's always been some of them. But now we'd reached a new kind of culture war. The culture war had changed dramatically. Not only in the culture, he, the moral psychologist is looking at it more from a cultural phenomenon. I'm trying to take what the moral psychologist, this Jonathan H-A-I-D-T, who's an atheist, he's looking at more from a cultural standpoint, and I'm trying to go, the culture, may, this all may have been happening 2008, 2009, we, we could argue over the beginning, the tipping point. But there was things happening, and the average Christian was getting pulled into it, was getting sucked into it, and not even realizing it. And the next thing you know, once it starts, you know, influencing the average Christian, the average Christian influences the church. And I think before long, this cultural tribe mentality came into the church. And the church started acting like the world and we started arguing and fighting and we were not gracious, not merciful, condemn, gossip, slander, destroy people. Just just all the same horrible characteristics seen in the world was now being seen in Christians on social media. So we we entered into a different kind of culture war where the target, now this is very interesting. Now, so, so, so we have the culture war going on. Now, he says something kind of changed within the culture war. 
where the target is not people on the other side so much as those on one's own side who express any sympathy for the other side's viewpoints or even their humanity. In other words, the culture war got so bad that what has happened is like now, not only are you condemning the other side and wanting your your views to be the dominant ones, you begin to look at anyone, quote unquote, on your side. And if they showed sympathy, if they showed empathy, if they even recognized the other side's humanity, then you begin to attack that you're weak. and and, And then you literally begin to attack people on your own side because they didn't cross their T or dot their I the right way and more condemnation, more judgment, more just anything. And you just, just again, find where Christians are on social media and watch their behavior. It's always some outrage, condemning someone, calling someone names, and it's just insanity. But the church just kept, and, and I think many pastors we're like, man, what do we do here? What do we do here? What do we do here? Do, do I, pastors would see what their, their, their church members were doing on social media. Do you address it? Do you call it out? And then you get people mad at you. Now, I think this complete attack upon any, any empathy, any sympathy, I, I, this just crass, cruel, hateful, vindictive mentality not only became a part of of many in the church and how they conducted themselves, many in the church then found themselves being very drawn to a political candidate who was very vindictive and mean and many of the way he approached social media and he became the hero to many within Christianity. Because they wanted to fight those liberals. They wanted to fight the ungodly and fight them with their, you know, fight fire with fire, sword for sword, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, vindictive, rude, condescending sarcasm, just like they give us. Instead of going, wait a minute, are we doing this the right way? Is this the godly way? Is this the Christian way? No, we wanted to just win a culture war. We wanted our views to be dominant. We wanted to establish, I don't know, our own little mini Christian kingdom. Political culture, political, I'm going to read this all uh, together. All right, the next paragraph says, political, cultural, or religious extremists whose goal is to produce viral content, target dissenters, are nuanced thinkers on their own team, making sure that democratic institutions based on compromise and consensus grind to a halt. So what started happening in the political world and the cultural world, they refer to them as religious extremists. Even within the religious world, their goal began to produce viral content and target dissenters or anyone who tried to be a little nuanced or tried to be a little balanced attack them. You're, you're a liberal. You're, you're not taking a stand. How dare you? you you, you probably agree with, with the LGBTQ movement. You probably agree with women pastors. If you just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if we're conducting ourselves in a godly way. How dare you say that? Silence you. You know, that's just, it just turned into chaos. And so there was no room for compromise, no room for consensus. I would say no room for mercy or empathy or sympathy or grace or mercy or godliness. It became about fleshliness, winning at all costs, getting your agenda, winning the culture war. At the same time, this uh, moral psychologist, again, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, and I, I keep trying to, to figure out exactly how to say it because I don't want to say hate like H-A-T-E, but it's H-A-I-D-T. So there's probably an easy way to say it, but I'm saying it incorrectly. So I just want to make sure that if I'm saying the name incorrectly, I'm doing everything I can to be as fair as I can, or to be as accurate as I can. But at the same time, this moral psychologist, we'll call him Jonathan, uh, contends this sort of outraged, fueled, enhanced the enhanced idea of, of going viral, you know, this idea of virality, of, of we're going to go viral, 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 viral. And it just became going from one viral thing to another. Vi- and, and even if you weren't the one trying to produce the viral content, you were following the viral trend. You were following whatever was the outrage, the, the, the debate today on social media. 
This is why our institutions are stupider in mass because social media instilled in their members a chronic fear of getting darted. So this, this created this, this mob mentality and then nobody wanted to go against the mob. So many institutions, I'm going to back, I'm going to back down. I'm going to, I'm going to go with them. I'm going to go with them, which then in a sense makes you stupider and mass because you're just following the mob and there cannot be nuanced thinking. There cannot be careful thinking. It's just everyone takes a side and then you attack and you attack and you attack. This leaves the discourse controlled by a tiny minority of extreme trolls all looking for traitors, Karens, or heretics to root out. Now, we'll stop right here. Now, I'm, I'm following this way of reasoning because I just want you to see that, that sometimes as these things are developing within culture and as that culture begins to infiltrate and influence the church, usually those there at the time, they don't see it. They don't even recognize, the average church member may not even realize and recognize how their attitudes have changed, their words have changed. And, and instead of going, they're, 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 they can continue to compare themselves with other people on social media instead of taking a step back, comparing themselves to the eternal God and his word. And it's almost like social media, you're living in some fantasy world and you're not even judging and, uh, your behavior by how you would judge your behavior in the real world. And this psychological change begin to impact what we see in the church. And, and so then that we, it's, it's like every day we're fighting a culture war and then it just creates this mentality because you see these other a- attitudes that these other attitudes or these other perspectives have to be destroyed, which then increases this culture war mentality. This tribalism. The author of this article goes on to say that the the, uh, moral psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, his metaphor might be even more on point than he realizes. Babel, after all, was was not just a technological achievement leading to fragmentation and confusion. It was rooted in two driving forces, which are also behind the outrage culture we are presently submerged in. One of these is the desire for personal glory and fame. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, the Babel, the Babel builders said in Genesis chapter 11, verse four. So there was a desire for notoriety and fame. And a lot of people, when they're on social media and they're arguing and they're fighting and they're retweeting, and what, what is your goal? To win a debate? Or is it some personal notoriety, some personal recognition for you to go viral? Like, what what are you trying to accomplish in fighting that? Sometimes I don't even think it's about fighting the culture war. It's about our own desire for attention, fame, recognition, self-esteem. We could go back to uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. Okay, we we, we talked about this. I I think there's, there's something going on here. On any given day, we can see this dynamic at work. Uh, and people who think the only way to build their personal brand is to attack someone they deem more significant or to say something outrageous to draw out mobs of supporters and dissenters. Now, this becomes common, again, for many within the Christian world, Christian podcasters, people who are have a, a big following on social media. Well, okay, you've got to attack something today. You've got to say something outrageous. You've got to have a hot take. You've got to come in because, boom, that gets those numbers going. Look, I know right now, I can look at my the YouTube numbers right now, and the YouTube numbers have started to kind of go back down. Now, what made the YouTube numbers go up? ha. <laughs> I did a couple of uh, episodes dealing with all of the controversy with John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, Eileen Gray, David Gray, excommunication, spouse, uh, domestic dispute, d- domestic abuse, sexual abuse of children, uh, one of us in jail, all the, then we talked a little bit about the crazy things that were said in the counseling course there at Master Seminary, and boom, I, I was involved in the controversy, and numbers go up. You chase that stuff. And, and that not only is true of podcasters, it's just true of the average person on social media. There's a lot of things you can post on social media. You may not get that much attention. You may not get much interaction, but you find yourself in the latest controversy, the latest outrage, 
boom, either you're going to get all of your supporters who are like, yeah, yeah, preach it. That's good. You're right. Disney is of the devil. You're, I mean, it starts with a D. It has to be of the devil. Turning red. I mean, the turn red. That has to be, a, that has to be demonic as well. And, and let's get upset. Let's get upset. Let's get upset. And boom, you get, all your, you get everyone going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then next thing you know, it almost becomes like a drug. And you're finding yourself fighting these culture war. And I don't even think the, the goal is to win the culture war. The goal is your own self-esteem and your own self-exaltation. Even though you would deny it, you're saying you're taking a stand for God. Are you taking a stand for God or you just love being in, in, in never-ending arguments on social media? Let me read that again. On any given day, we can see this dynamic at work and people who think the only way to build their personal brand is to attack someone they seem who they deem more significant or to say something outrageous enough to draw out mobs of supporters and dissenters. The other driving force is the desire for self-protection. The tower was necessary, the builder said, because otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. The technology was needed to forestall an existential threat. So in other words, back to the Tower of Babel, they built it so they wouldn't be scattered abroad. It was, it was for their own protection. So many on social media, hey, you're going you're gonna to side with one side because that becomes like your gang. You don't want to, you, you need your gang to have your back in case you end up in another argument with someone else. So what should a Christian, what should a Christian's posture be in this post-Babel world? James Davison Hunter warned over a decade ago that much of American evangelical culture war engagement was based in a heightened sense of resentment. Uh, He said this went beyond resentment to include a combination of anger, envy, hate, rage, and revenge, in which a sense of injury and anxiety became key to the group's identity. All right. Uh, yeah, and he, I, I guess it's a heightened sense of, as he called it, resentment, right? Um, which is different than just the word resentment. So it's R-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-M-E-N-T, resent, resentment, right? So he created a different word, but basically what he was trying to do is create a word that demonstrated that it was a heightened sense of resentment. It's something that went beyond resentment and include all of this anger, envy, hate, rage, revenge, and which a sense of injury and anxiety became key to the group's identity. So the group began to have this idea that we've been injured. We're under attack. They're destroying our way of life. They're destroying the country we once knew, and we've got to do something about it. And so now it almost builds a resentment and, and a, a need to attack, and we've got to win and fight, 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 fight. They go on to say, often... This sort of anxiety-fueled rage and revenge is bound up not with the fear of specific pol- policy outcome, but with more, uh, more of a primal fear, more akin to middle school, the fear of humiliation. It feels like a kind of death, the kind that leaves one exposed and ridiculed by the outside world. In other words, you, you almost get this feeling that, you know, we're, we're going to we're attack, we're, we're being persecuted, they're after us, they're going to they're gonna destroy our way of life. And then Christians find themselves following, you know, conspiracy theories and they get all caught up in this. And it's just this, all of these emotions are going and it's just one outrage after another, fighting and arguing and debating and condemning anyone and everyone they can. And Hunter's view, this posture is heightened when the group holds a sense of entitlement to greater respect, to greater power, to a place of majority status. And many Christians have this sense of, of entitlement. Hey, we we deserve the greater power. We we should be the majority. Our view should be the majority because our view is the righteous one. Our view is the right one. So everyone should follow. Our view should be the dominant view in culture because it's God's view, right? So we feel a sense of entitlement because we're like, well, I've got the Bible on my side and the Bible says that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's the way it should be. So we should we should fight to to win this culture war because it's a sense of entitlement. This posture 
he warned, is a political psychology that expresses itself with the condemnation and denigration of enemies and the effort to subjugate and dominate those who are culpable. That's what you try to do. You dominate, you you attack, you condemn. It was no coincidence that Jerry Falwell Sr. named his political movement the Moral Majority, hearkening back to Richard Nixon's silent majority. The idea was that most Americans wanted the same values as conservative evangelicals, but were stimmied by coastal liberal elites who are not able to rule over the wishes of most people. Often, the most contentious aspects of American life center on the question, who is trying to take America away from us? Whether that be the immigrant caravans overwhelming the border, the concept of American elites developing a global pandemic to control the population with vaccines, or the rhetoric of Satan-worshipping pedophile rings that of highest levels of government. Yeah, you, you hear, you, I've heard a lot of that within the Christian world and the conspiratorial world. Hey, hey, they're, they're coming to take America from us. And, and we're, we, we should be the moral majority. Our, our, we deserve to be right because we're, we're godly and our views are right and our, our views are just and our views are moral and everyone want these, wants these views. So we're fighting for the majority that's being subjugated by the horrible evil elites and the global elitist and the new world order and a pedophile, a ring of satanic pedophiles. And, and, and we're fighting a a global conspiracy to try to kill us all through a vaccine. You just, you just, you just start down this rabbit hole and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it just creates paranoia, fear, condemnation and attack and outrage. And, and, and you're just on a heightened state of alert because we're, you know, we got to win this. In her book, High Conflict, Amanda Ripley writes that humiliation happens whenever our brains have conducted a rapid-fire evaluation of events and fit it into our understanding of the world. But that's not enough, she argues. To be brought low, we have to first see ourselves as belonging up high. To illustrate this, Ripley points to her once-ever golf outing in which she missed the ball over and over again. She laughed at herself. She said... She said, but didn't feel humiliated because being good at golf is not part of her identity. However, if world-renowned golfer Tiger Woods performed the same way, he would feel humiliated, especially if the misses were caught on camera before a wide, a wide television audience. Yet, the cross is quite different. Now, you see why some people feel this sense of humiliation because these morals, these ideas, we, it's almost becomes our identity. Our identity becomes more a system of morality than it does Christ. And then we want this, this system of morality to be imposed on everyone else because if they attack it, then that it seems to humiliate us or attack us. So maybe we have our identity wrong. We, we, we could get really deep into some of this. But here we go. The cross is quite different. As Fleming Rutledge notes in her magisterial work, The Crucifixion, there is no method the Roman Empire could have chosen to signify greater humiliation and domination than to crucify those who stood against its rule. A cross not only ended a life, but it did so in the most ridiculing ways possible. By magnifying Caesar's domination over one grasping for air on a stake, with Roman soldiers standing around and crowds screaming in rage and laughter, Good Friday looked like the triumph of Babel right down to the to Babel, right down in the signs in the multiple languages over the head of the crucified king. And yet Jesus spoke of this downward trajectory as the way in which he would be lifted up and, and would draw all people to himself. This stands in contrast, not only to those who sought to magnify their own name, such as Caesar, who wanted no rivals to his reign, but also to those who sought their own self-protection, like the disciples who fled in fear. Only the crucified Christ, the sin-bearing Lamb of God, vindicated by the resurrecting power of his Father, could pour out his Spirit in a way that could reverse Babel or Babel at Pentecost. 
But the resurrection and ascension was not an undoing of the crucifixion. They were instead a continuation of what Jesus pronounced to be a triumph through defeat, a power through weakness. As New Testament scholar Richard Hayes once noted, after the resurrection, Jesus did not appear to Pilate or to Caesar or to Herod. To do so would have been to vindicate himself, to win an argument rather than to save the world. Instead, as Luke puts it, Jesus presented himself alive to those he had chosen as witnesses. That's because Jesus' kingdom would advance not through resentment and grievance, but through those who would bear witness to him with sincerity and truth, even to the loss of their own lives. Conquering like that through the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony is what winning looks like, especially when one sees who the enemy actually is. Experts tell us to expect the next few years to be worse than the previous ones. Those who seek to make a name for themselves by exploiting fear and outrage will continue to get better at it. And they will not lack an audience of those who believe the only thing standing between them and annihilation is the, is, is the amount of theoretical, of theor, uh, theatrical anger that they can demonstrate and that they can put forth to hold back this annihilation. Culture wars and outrage cycles might fuel ratings and clicks and fundraising appeals, but they cannot reconcile sinners to a holy God. They cannot reunite a fragmented people. They cannot even make us less afraid in the long run. Good Friday, or the crucifixion, should remind us that as Christians, adding more outrage and anger to a culture already exhausted by its own is not how God defines his wisdom and power. Babel, or Babel building, can't help us. Only cross-carrying can. Wow. Now, for, it's going to get worse. The culture is going to become more divided. There's going to be more anger, more fighting, especially as we move towards the midterm elections. People are going to look to politics. They're going to want to win, 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 win. They're going to celebrate when they think they get a victory. Right now, a lot of Christians are so happy that Disney's being punished. Yeah, that'll teach them. Let's go after the woke mob. Let's call people woke. Let's call people snow snowflakes. Let's call people whatever we want to call them. We call people names. We fight. We argue. We act like fleshly, carnal, ungodly children is what we act like. The key to victory is not through winning culture wars, through arguing and fighting and boycott and censor and and, and trying to, no, it's not trying to recreate, it's not trying to force the ungodly world to live like Christians. The way forward has always been through the preaching of Christ and him crucified by exalting Christ, lifting Christ up on the cross, letting the world see the crucified Savior who died for sinners. And for us, denying ourselves, taking up a cross and not following ourselves, but following him. It's not through, it's through the preaching of the cross. It's through living out the reality of what Jesus teaches us about loving even our enemies, turning the other cheek. It's through demonstrating mercy and grace and empathy. It's about not gossip and slander and calling people names and acting ungodly. It's a completely different way of thinking. The church has so embraced the world's mentality that here we are, the only difference between us and the world is the side of the culture war, which we now identify. That's the only difference. I used to be on that side of the culture war. Now I'm on this side of the culture war. And I just use God to prove that my view is right. God is simply a means to an end. He he gives me the moral authority to condemn everyone else. He gives me the moral authority to tell everyone they're wrong. Now I'm going to go win the culture war. Jesus is not there to give you a moral authority to prove that you're somehow right. Jesus calls you to come and die, to take up your cross to go and preach the gospel, not to win the culture war. We overcome not through boycotts, silencing people, and doing all the crazy things Christians involved in. It's through praying, fasting, preaching, loving, forgiving, mercy, grace, kindness, turning the other cheek. It's embracing the crucified life. That is how we 
move forward. The culture war mentality has to stop. That article went through a lot of the, the concepts of it. And let me, let me do something. I did, there, there, again, there's a word that's used here. And I know they're trying to do a play on word, uh, words, and I could just forget it, and nobody would even remember that uh, we, we got it wrong. But he uses this word. Let me see if I can find it here. Oh, no, that's not it. It's, it's a play on the word resentment, but it's a more intensified form of resentment. So he adds a couple of things together. Resentiment. 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 how I would. Resentiment. It's a psychological state arising from suppressed feelings of envy, hatred that cannot be acted upon. Resentiment. That sounds like re- resent. It, look, it looks like resentment, but it's different. Resentiment. Resentiment. Because they put it right there in the article with the other word resentment. Resentiment goes beyond resentment to include a combination of anger, envy, hate, rage, and revenge. So, so the church has gone beyond resentment. It's resentment is, is the way that definition offered it up. It's this, this feeling. Again, it's a psychological state. Let me go back through here. It's a psychological state um, arising from the suppressed, suppressed feelings of envy, hatred that cannot be acted upon. So, so you, you, it's just this, you, you, we just build this up and then we want to fight and argue and we're going to win and we're going to, and it's just, it's completely opposite to what we're called to be. All right. I'll stop right there. There's, there's so much more I could say. There's so much more I can say. There's a lot of concepts there. And I apologize for messing up that word. When I first read the article, I read it as resentment. And then I realized, wait a minute, they say resentment. And then they say resentment. <laughs> they, they, they say the, the uh, uh, over a decade ago, that much of American evangelical culture war engagement was based on the heightened sense of resentment. He said that went beyond resentment. And I'm like, wait a minute, that it's the same word. No, it's just, it's a little different. It's resentment. okay, is I guess the way you say it. Um, so let's do here. I'm going to look at a couple things, make sure I've got no notifications or questions while we were live on the air. Okay. Don't see anything here. Don't say anything here. I'm going to go here. Don't say anything in the Discord channel. And I'm going to check the Spreaker app because sometimes the things don't show up in the chat. I'm going to make sure I haven't missed anyone's comments. That's not what we're. I need here. Come on. There we go. We're live. And nope. All right. So we did not miss anyone's comments. There's a lot there to consider this evening. The cross contradicts culture wars. The church has abandoned the cross for the culture war. And there's a lot of problems there. All right, I'll stop right there. We'll see if this generates some conversation. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.